0: Every once in a while, I come across a professional learning book that literally keeps me up at night. I'm thinking about the educator friends I want to recommend it to. I think about the ways in which I want to have further conversations about it. I think about all the librarians in my network who I want to reach out to and say, hey, if you don't know about this book yet, please make sure that you stock up on copies. Here are some of the ways that you might advocate for sharing this book. And the book that I am thinking about in regards to all that is Demarginalizing Design by Dee Lanier. And I was so fortunate to get to speak with Dee further about this incredible book. So let me tell you a little bit more about the author. Dee Lanier is a lifelong educator who is extremely passionate about issues of equity and inquiry-based learning. A career educator, Dee has facilitated racial equity and culturally responsive professional development globally through the lens of design thinking. Dee holds undergraduate and master's degrees in sociology with special interests in education, race relations, and inequity. Dee is an award-winning presenter, TEDx speaker, Google-certified trainer, Google innovator, and Google-certified coach. He is also the creator of the Design Thinking Educational Activities, Solve in Time, and Maker Kitchen, and is the co host of the Liberated Educator podcast. We're going to talk about those in this episode, and you'll be able to head over to the show notes to learn more about Solving Time, Maker Kitchen, as well as the Liberated Educator podcast. I'm actually going to spotlight a few episodes that have been my favorites. And of course, you're also going to find the link to this incredible book, Demarginalizing Design. Please welcome to the show, D. Lanier. I have been really looking forward to this show. Um, I've got the book in front of me. I feel like I I almost want to request like a a little like digital (laughs) signature through the airwaves. Um, I have to tell you, there were many things I appreciated about the design of the book. And I, I guess when the name of the book is Demarginalizing Design, you really have to think about that piece too. But the one thing that I caught myself coming back to again and again when I was talking to folks about this book is that part of what the book is doing is reminding readers that there is not one recipe, one model for design thinking, but you really talk to readers about appreciating mindset over just prescribed model. And I'm wondering if you might want to walk us through how you came to that understanding and, and maybe speak to why it's important.
1: Hmm. Sure thing. Um, well, a couple of things influenced my journey in that regard and and one in my own introduction to design thinking was very much definitive article the design thinking uh, model is right and every introduction to design thinking looked very much the same and so I was giving credit based on my experience my exposure and it wasn't until I started to just hear more terminology, hearing things such as human-centered design. And then that would create a question in my mind. So is human-centered design the same as design thinking? And then I would hear that, oh, well, there's a different model that exists. And then it kind of made me uh, take a step back and and just start asking the question, well, what is design thinking if it is not this definitive article, the model, right? Um, What is design thinking? And it made me um, really appreciate what educators do on a daily basis, which is help students to think in design ways. Right. I oftentimes reference like writing a five paragraph recipe <laughs> recipe. I just said recipe. Uh, a five paragraph essay is a recipe of sorts. Right. It's um you know, it is, is very much formulaic and saying you go from here to there to there, and at the end, you should result in something that looks like this. Now, those are the parameters, but at the same time, uh, you have lots of freedom within those uh, creative constraints. And so there's that, and then there's uh, the engineering process, which you're very much already familiar with. There's um, the scientific scientific method. And so all these different things started making me realize, wait a minute. Teachers already design think on a regular basis. They already implement different ways of thinking um, like designers do, which if you've ever encountered a designer of any sort, right? Someone who is a professional designer, a interior designer, you start to recognize they are wired a little bit different. Um, but the wiring is typically in the form of question asking. They ask a lot of questions before jumping to conclusions and giving uh, responses or giving recommendations. And so that was just part of my journey in discovering different modes of uh, design thinking and then really appreciating that design thinking uh, is something that is implemented regularly in multiple disciplines, uh, multiple content areas, and most especially has been implemented for ages. Right. And so um, that for me, is what really opened up my aperture, if you will, to really appreciate design thinking is, and that is first and foremost, a mindset um, and not a model.
0: I love that. And, you know, you go through also, I think the benefits of like you were just doing in your response, like the benefits of comparing and and kind of, you know, seeing where different models maybe align, um, maybe seeing how different models push us to come up with something that's a really personalized, bespoke version as well. And throughout the book, you know, I I really appreciate how often you're pointing readers to additional educators, additional uh, additional leaders to go to and learn from. Um, Because that's, you know, whenever I'm looking through professional learning text, I feel like something that I'm often looking for is broaden my horizons, but also I really appreciate when people recognize like all of this thinking has been influenced by others, right? And I feel like that's really important in design too, is that maybe that appreciation and that recognition that as problem solvers, none of us are doing this work alone, So I don't know if that was an intentional design piece by you with the book, that you knew you wanted to be almost leading folks to like, if you're enjoying what I'm saying here, you also might wanna check out this book, this thinker, this educator. Was that something that you knew going into the process that you wanted to do?
1: Somewhat, I would say my firm personal conviction was to make sure that I gave credit, right? Uh, because you lose nothing by giving credit. And even the cover design artwork, right? I had somewhat of a back and forth conversation with that artist and good friend, Monica Martinez. And I was compensating her for her work. But I, I said, I, I want you to put your name on the cover. And she said, no, 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 it's fine, right? Because traditionally, she's like, no, I get paid to be able to create something that you can call your own. But I just thought that would be so disingenuine. Um, And I want others to recognize that she's brilliant and her work is fantastic. And if you want to see more of her work, like find her name, look up some of the things that she produces. And then that also carried over into the people that I asked to review the different chapters that I was writing. Uh, those are the shoutouts at the top and their Twitter handles, uh, if Twitter still exists when people are listening <laughs> to this, um, or if those friends are still on friends, it hasn't completely like turned toxic to the place of unbreathable. Um, my intention was to make sure that we don't bury the people who have influenced and who have uh, helped create something or co-create something that we don't bury them in the margins or bury them in the footnotes or put them at the very 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 end in the fine print that if you happen to go there you may uh find them but instead to shout outs because these are the people that have influenced me these are the people that cheered me along as i was writing and then uh at any point that i may reference writing that i am recalling i remember where i got this from or my research right i wanted to make sure that i not only made a footnote and you know or end note or what have you but that i that i called out the names of the people who who influenced that thinking uh, because oftentimes people who are original designers or people who are creators their their work is often co-opted by others and then that other person who becomes more popular from that work is the one who then gets credited for it And I just did not want to continue that trend as it pertains to my work. As it pertains to my work, it is a collective, we work on this together. And I've been influenced by these people at these different junctures of time. And if that serves as a model for others, then uh, I'm happy for it. But most importantly, it's for me just to stay genuine.
0: Yeah, I, I think it is an important model and it really also is where your book Is living and breathing some of the advice that you're talking about and the insight and the wisdom. You know, you're this book in some ways, I think of as being a love letter to humility, a concept that, like, yeah, we need a lot more of. Um, The book provides insight into how we can cultivate humility. And part of that is. Um, You know, you talking about the role of self-reflection, and I'm going to quote you back to you awkwardly for a moment. You write, quote, the goal of deep humility is simply to learn what biases may be blocking your vision from seeing what they need to see. It is to get out of the way so the real problems that affect people can be seen properly and the people who are affected by those problems can be given the full attention they deserve. Uh, folks who have a copy of the book. It's page 62. As well as authoring this book, you also share your wisdom as co-host of the Liberated Educator podcast. Link to that will be over there in the show notes. I might pick out a few of my favorite episodes and D, and let me know if there's a few of your favorites that you want me to link to. I'm wondering if it would be accurate for me to say that you personally get to practice deep humility through the act of of co-hosting that show
1: absolutely so my favorite episode is uh any of those with ken shelton and that's a joke as <laughs> if i
0: uh,
1: co-host um and there are a couple on there i would say the one with dr val brown who is a fantastic friend and i think she said some words of care to both of us at a time when i was incredibly vulnerable and so next thing you know i'm like wiping tears because she's She's like just blessing me and us with um, good, caring words, uh, comfort words that, that I know that I needed in that particular time. Um, the call out to humility is something that I would first credit my faith, but the regular practice of it is also just the benefit of being surrounded by absolutely brilliant people. Right. Um, and actually, if I were to say utmost, first and foremost, it would be in my experience as a classroom teacher and my students and me, especially my first few years, um, coming in with a lot of hubris, coming in with a lot of arrogance, not even recognizing it as such, but, you know, even in the, even in the current uh, language use of cultural relevance and cultural responsiveness. And I say relevant because it is relatively relevant in terms of being more widely used. But I went in to my original, my first work studying, uh, very much confident that I, I can relate to my kids because um, they are mostly black and brown. I'm black male. Uh, I grew up in a setting that is similar to uh, economically what many of them grew up in. And so I got this. Like I just need to employ what I know from a content and curriculum standpoint, but then I can just be me and i I can connect with these kids easy. And I could not have been more wrong. and i I could not um, understand what I was doing wrong until I took a step back and realized I needed to really, really get to know my students. I really need to understand their stories. I really needed to begin to cater the curriculum to who they were, uh, who they are, and not to my preferences or even my experiences. And that's when things started to unlock, when I started to see that their creativity is really where their, bar- their brilliance was, was easily manifest when I gave them options of how they shared out their learning. When we started in doing skits and plays instead of PowerPoint presentations. Mm -hmm. Um, When I started allowing them to make music and to um, create spoken word pieces instead of five paragraph essays, right? When that sort of thing started happening, I got to hear their story and see their creativity and I would come in every day with the expectation to just be surprised. Like, what will I be surprised by today? Um, and those things are things I think that were very foundational to me. Growing in the mindset of uh, humility means learning on a regular basis. And that deep humility has to be something that comes from a genuine curiosity, like an, Absolute, Genuine curiosity, but you also have to be in a good place emotionally to be able to do that. Um, so that's also where self-care comes in. Um, being able to breathe through the circumstances, because when you're dealing with students, especially those who, uh, may have had some extremely, uh, trying and traumatic experiences, you know, to, to quote Jeffrey Duncan, Andrade, kids are on fire. And so, uh, they come in smelling like smoke. And sometimes we uh, start to be over-affected by the toxicity of breathing in the smoke that is coming from them on a regular basis. So being in a good place to be able to hear, listen, and learn is also something that I'm attempting every day to grow in.
0: I really appreciate you talking about the complexity of that because it's One thing, you know, as you're saying, to have the capacity to foster relationships with students, easier said than done. It's another thing to understand, like, the lesson facilitation and design that's amplifying autonomy. And then there's that other component of, you know, the educational system does not make it easy for teachers to take care of themselves, right? Like, you know, I... And, you know, we're recording this in the summer when I often hear folks like, oh, you know, must be amazing having all that downtime. And, you know, there's research that teachers work more unpaid, you know, extra overtime than any other industry. Um, and just the the emotional labor of you're working with so many humans, right? Like every day has so much nuance, so much complexity. It's, I think, for folks who have never worked in the classroom, it's almost unimaginable. I'm wondering if, for that teacher who is thinking, I do want to work on that relationship piece, because I've, you know, I really like you pointing out, like, you know, you had the arrogance when I was first a new teacher. I also had a lot of arrogance. I kind of thought just by fact of, this is a long time ago, but when I was in my 20s, like, oh, my generation is not so far off from the generation of high school students I'm teaching, mm-hmm. right, yep. but that's not it, It's there's so much more to it. Yep. Um, and your book talks a lot about the power of questions throughout. I wonder if you could just say a little bit more about that aspect of teaching that is so critical, but I really think it's like an art and craft. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of wondering, like for me hosting a podcast, I, I feel like it's a really great ongoing professional learning for me in thinking about questions. Um, I, don't, I don't know. Is there, has that been useful to you, like in thinking about questions or conversations or is there something else that's, that's going on that uh, has been great for you in that relationship cultivation piece?
1: absolutely uh, well thank you for mentioning that today i am no longer in the classroom i am primarily in the role of supporting teachers and so i also can't walk into an environment and have the the hubris that i had as as an early teacher and thinking oh i already know mm-hmm. what you're going through i already know what circumstance you're in I, You know, what helped cultivate that is um, me and a few friends. We are part of the original uh, Google Certified Coaching Program in its development. And we were the original mentors in that regard. And being connected to multiple people who were in the same role as I was in, but in different districts scattered across the country, different circumstances. Uh, some in rural schools, some in so-called urban schools, some in, you know, different settings that I realized in order to understand what they are dealing with, I need to ask them questions. And then what was happening in that regard was also helping model for them what they needed to do in order to support their teachers, which is ask questions. hmm. But what questions should you ask? Right? <laughs> what questions um, make sense for a circumstance? Well, for me, it was always a call—a callback to social studies, seventh grade, uh, and it also became a current event assignment I did with my own students of, you know, get a current event article, and I want you to uh, write out who, what, when, where, why, and how, and answer those questions, and then You know some form of summary at the end very in a low level but those very simple five w's and an h have helped me think through circumstances and to consider what are three questions that i don't know the answer to so before i say anything in the form of recommendation what are three questions that i don't know the answer to um or I have a lower confidence level of, mm-hmm. I have heard the answer to this question. And so it's kind of just going through a mental rubric. Um, you know, if someone is sharing the trying circumstance that they're dealing with, I'm thinking about um, instructional coaches and technology coaches in this regard. And they may start to mention people. So I'm like, okay, check, check off the who. I might ask an, a follow-up question about who. Okay, so you said, um, a couple of students in your third block class. What time is that? What is it, when is that relative to lunch? Right, like, so I'm starting to get curious about what's going on in that circumstance. Um, okay, so you say that they get destructive. How does that look? Or how does that sound? And right? just asking those very open-ended questions to get some of those answers and not that I'm like, okay, once I, I'm just waiting to tell you my recommendation and I'm just going to ask you these questions in, in a performative manner, but literally recognize that my understanding of the circumstances being shaped by them processing through what's happening, who's involved, when it happens, where it happens, how frequently it happens, those sort of things. So from there, oftentimes I recognize that just talking with someone and asking them questions, they start to come up with their own recommendations for what they may try that has been untested only because we've just asked questions. And some of it is asking questions about things that they hadn't thought to ask that question. But because I asked it, now they are processing through that. That is really the motivation behind question asking and then the other part of it is that i'm a talker by nature and i know that about myself and so if you hand me a microphone i'm going to speak but what does it require of me to pause and to get curious and to not make assumptions and in doing that as an exercise slows me down And in many cases, especially when in a cooperative environment, it gives space to the people who process differently and who just need a little bit of space to then process their thoughts, to then share their thinking. That, I think, is a benefit to the whole.
0: It's almost sort of, I think, when we talk about compassionate communication, you know, so much of what you just walked through, that idea of thinking about pace, not rushing, not making assumptions, deep listening, Um, you know, to be a truly authentic, compassionate communicator. It's not like I can take a weekend workshop and then I've got it done like, I, I kind of feel like these are things that we need to practice and cultivate throughout our, our life. But the, the benefit of when you do that is this is not just like, okay, my workplace benefits, like we see benefits with our personal friendships, families, our neighbors. Um, you are also the creator of Solve in Time and Maker Kitchen. I'm wondering if you see those as also spaces where folks can continue to work on and harness these skills.
1: Um, yes. And thank you for the shout out for both of those. Uh, both of those were projects that I worked on as a classroom teacher and then had the privilege of bringing into professional development spaces. And both were also outflows of me aiming to become more dialogical versus didactic in my instruction in a classroom. And So, again, shout out to uh, DeLinear in 2008 and before when I was modeling what was modeled before me, standing in front of a lectern, talking to the students, expecting them to take notes, and then telling them the benefit of them learning this information that I am gifting them with is that they will... Get a good grade on a test uh, so that they can pass my path, pass my class so that they can then go on to uh, other aspirational goals. But to realize that that's not what everyone's um, motivation is, uh, is what changed that up for me. And so when I started thinking, how can I make this more interesting? Um, so the low level way in which I started that was let's just gamifying our test prep uh, and would have them make games out of them and then they would test each other's games and they would give feedback on each other's games and they would improve their games and I realized oh as they were making games they were more interested in the game making than they were in the you know content let's be honest uh memorization and and regurgitation but they were getting the benefit of learning the content and so then as I started to implement more game-like elements uh just from being an observer and and the one thing I don't mention in my book but I probably should uh, maybe as a follow-up maker kitchen in particular, being a low cost makerspace gamified activity that was born out of watching the food network mm-hmm. and watching the evolution of the food network. And uh, you not know, 15, 20 years ago, if you watch the food network and cook, cooking channel cooking show, what did you expect to see professional chef? front of the camera telling you how to prepare something showing you how magnificent it looks at the end and essentially replicate what they did and that's the show but what does it look like today Uh, most of them are game shows and the professionals are coaches on the side they you know are are judges of sorts and there are all these like game elements you have here's a challenge this much time go i started putting big timers up and then the intense music that oftentimes right? these are all game like and elements and then um gamifying things like the ask three before me rule right something that many teachers are familiar with and utilize right so uh For me, I I attempted Ask Three Before Me, but it failed so frequently that I was like, okay, something's got to change here. I I got a poster on the wall and I would say Ask Three Before Me. Kids ignore it, um, raise their hand. Literally paste uh, or tape that Three Before Me poster on the desk. So for me, it became then an additional challenge of how do I get out of the way? And how do I help the students recognize that my job is to empower them uh, to give them the skills that they need in order to problem solve on their own, to point them in the direction of resources they may need in order to problem solve on their own, uh, but to most importantly, utilize one another because they are their top uh, commodity, if you will. Uh, and this whole language of preparing students for the real world, that's what the real world is. Yeah. It is not in isolation. It's not individualistic. Um, it is working cooperatively. I'm going
0: to do that awkward thing of quoting your work back to you again. Um, that piece that you were just talking about in terms of really centering students, you've got this great line on page 136 where you write about the partnership schools have to foster with learners. The the quote that, again, I, I've highlighted, I've got this, uh, I have really marked up page 136 of my text. You write. Quote, let's do the work of dialoguing with them to discover what matters most to them, the ways in which they have been marginalized and engage in the deep work of co-designing their future, end quote. Okay, now I'm going to ask you to correct me if I'm paraphrasing you incorrectly, but demarginalizing design, as a reader, I feel like it really amplifies the power of quality questions as a means to develop relationships. If that's If that paraphrasing sits well with you, I'm wondering if you could offer us a few questions you would like to see more folks bringing to learners. And um, I appreciate you talking about the facilitation you do with adult learners. So when I use that word learners, like age restrictions off, just a few questions that you think Mm -hmm. again, um, we might want to ask more of.
1: Sure, well, Since you've put me in an awkward position twice now, I'm going to do something awkward that I hope doesn't uh, make you feel uncomfortable. But I want to say that when you sent me an email, I noticed that you had a recording of how to properly pronounce your name. And I listened to it and I thought, huh. It's not any different than I thought it would be. I' wouldn't think, I didn't think that Trisha would be hard, um, but then it made me think, oh, there might be it could be Trisha, it could be Trisha. It could be, yes, it could be different. Um, so I, I have a, I have a curious question for you, and that is, why do you have that in your handle? How did that come about? And what do you want others to get out of that?
0: I think the original inspiration for that came a few years back. Um, I am originally from the U.S., but I've lived and taught in eight different countries. And I would say when I first started teaching in China, this is like maybe 2002, I was noticing a lot of my students who were born and raised in China would say, don't worry, you don't have to use my Chinese name, call me Rick, call me Sunshine. And I was like, no, 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 like I wanna learn your name. And yeah, it took a little bit of practice, right? It took a little bit of practice, but we're talking like a few minutes kind of a thing. Um, you know, and and I, I get asked sometimes in the work that I do on LGBTQ plus inclusion, folks will say like, oh, you know, if someone is asking me to use a they them pronoun and I'm not like, I'm I'm not used to that, like, what do I do? Take a few minutes and practice it. Like, practice, you know, like having a conversation about your friend with another friend. You can even do it on your own. Like, it's just, it's a few minutes, right? Um, And I I think maybe my background in sports, like, you know, way back when, when I used to think of myself as athletic, it's like, if I don't know if I, if I needed help shooting the basketball, my coach was like this slight adjustment, make this slight adjustment, but do it like 20 times in a row. And then it becomes rote memory. I think like that idea that we can practice. And I realized, yeah, you know, my students were often saying, you don't have to, here's my, my English name. And yet, Many of their teachers were just expecting, but you're going to learn my name. Right. And I, th- mm-hmm. I think, you know, I, I, what can I do actually like this should be two way street kind of a thing. Um, what's a low stakes thing that I can do to make it easier for them to practice Back then, I think it was mm. probably like a Google Drive link. Now there's lots of great free tools where you can embed it. LinkedIn, yep. even um, you know, on LinkedIn, you could embed it. So it's just, I, I think of it as a nice little accessibility reminder for folks. And I, mm. I guess years mm-hmm. back when I started including my pronouns in my email, I had a lot of folks also because underneath that, I, <clears throat> I also have like a little link that's like, why is this here? And the number of times people were like, "Hey, I had no idea," um, and so I kind of—I don't know—it's interesting to me. Like, I—I I think that there's a lot of different access points where we can invite people in to learn, where it doesn't have to be pedantic, right? Um, like, if I, right, right, right—I I don't know. Like, it's just kind of like here's, like, if you want to wander into this little bit of learning you can but it's mm. not coming from that standpoint of like lecturing it's like if you're curious and you want to like wonder about this you mm. can I don't know if that answers your question right. or not.
1: it actually makes me more curious I want to know more right and I want to know like is there any cultural or familiar familial yeah that's the better way of pronouncing that word um connection to your last name is there anything from your last name that just someone knowing your last name what what do they not know
0: Mm. i mean it depends on the situation i think my last name
1: pronouncing it
0: no yeah it's um it's Friedman, and often that name is associated with uh with jewish folks and i I'm not practicing any faith or religion right now. And so sometimes people will make that assumption. And it's interesting how, Mm. you know, again, you've got me thinking you're modeling that curiosity, right? Like what do people notice? What do they wonder that, um, you know, like right from the get-go and sometimes folks will ask me about it, but. Sometimes they won't. Um, And it's interesting Mm -hmm. because um, my wife is Chinese. And what I have noticed is people will ask her more questions about things that they won't ask Mm -hmm. me. Um, And I've been thinking an awful lot about how my whiteness often, I think, people do not feel entitled to the same information. Um, You know, we, we do not have children. And I have yet to be asked by somebody, why don't you have kids? My wife has been asked that oh. countless times. Wow. Um, so, wow, like, so again, like, there. yeah, there's a lot there. So, it's, you know, again, like the assumptions that might get made, mm-hmm. I don't know that I necessarily get same, I'm going to ask you about that, or I feel entitled to ask you that, um, yeah, I just notice the kinds of questions like that my wife will get asked, that I do not get asked.
1: The power of dialogue. Thank you, number one, for sharing so much. I feel like you, you gave a lot of yourself um, there, and I really appreciate it. And you answered more questions that I was not even thinking about asking. Um, and I think if, if there's a recommendation to teachers it would be to do more of what I had the privilege of just experiencing with you and just asking, starting with your name mm. right? what's your name and how do you pronounce it and is there anything significant behind your name and some, you know, one person, their name may be Jay Smith, and you think this is the most boring name sure. in the world. There's nothing significant there. Um, but A, that may be a very strong false assumption, right? But also B, maybe even that person just hearing someone else share around their connection to their name, whether it be you know, familiar, uh, familial. I can't talk this morning Uh or uh, cultural or what have you, even that may open them up to reflect on maybe more of the significance of their name, maybe to ask questions that they may not have asked themselves before about their name. And that's just a starting point. Um, So again, I feel like you, you did that for us and if I would recommend anything to teachers. It would be to do that, I'd say first and foremost with their colleagues. I think that we are oftentimes in the field of education position for do this with your students, do this with your students, do this with your students. And we don't take the time to understand the importance or the impact of it by doing it ourselves. That's what good professional development, I think, provides is when we experience something and we get so excited about it. We think, I have to do this with my students because this is great. I had a great experience. I know that they'll have a great experience. I feel very confident that they will. Um, so starting, start just start with your name. Um, start mm-hmm. with the colleagues um, that you work with, even those that you may think that you know a lot about. And I would say often, listen for
0: the pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, but D, there's something else to that that hundred percent agree with you because this whole idea of I think it's almost like teachers there's all this pressure on you to cultivate these amazing relationships and that thinking of your experience first because what just happened when you asked me that question though is that it was invitational and you also Mm. kind of you know like it it wasn't a demand like there was Mm. an element of hair in the way that you presented the question that I felt like, yeah, we can, we can talk about that, of course. Right. And I feel like that crafting of the question and bringing it to somebody in that way is so important. Uh, And I think unless, as you're saying, I think unless as teachers, we are experiencing that with our peers, it's really hard, I think, to maybe understand about what that's like for students, um, because there's Mm -hmm. a different there's a different power piece at play too, right? Like, I think if I'm asking or I'm I'm demanding personal information from students, Mm. you know, there's a power play there that I I think we can think more about if we are practicing that with our peers because we can get a sense of that, right? Like, you in no way brought that question to me in like a power play kind of a way. Hmm. Um, like there's, there's like a, there's a care piece, right. That I think is,
1: right, right.
0: is so critical and so important and has to be rehearsed. Um, so I, I think that whole element, like those, wrong. those quality <laughs> conversations, right. Like it's, it's also like, what are we doing to set the conditions for them? Cause that exact same yeah. question, if brought in a different way, where it's like, I don't actually get the sense that you care. <laughs> it's not going to be the same mm, conversation.
1: You're absolutely correct. <laughs> you are absolutely correct. Yeah, that's where the deep humility piece comes in again. It should be a a stop, pause, uh, and and by the way, I feel like we needed to give credit or credit to do where I learned. You know the. Uh, noticing and reflecting as part of design thinking that comes from liberatory design. And that model, which in very many ways was a critique of Stanford D school's uh, design thinking model, which did not have those stop, pause, pay attention to yourself and others mm. and power dynamics and things of that nature. Um, and so they helped implement that. Um, and David Clifford, I got to give a shout out to my good buddy. Uh, he's one of the four co-creators of that model. He and I've become really good friends. And I will say he's one of the most caring individuals I've ever met. Mm-hmm. Ever, ever met. My first conversation with him, I recognized that this is someone who deeply, deeply cares about others. So also maybe a form of, of advice is yourself by those that you recognize. Uh, care well Uh, if some things don't necessarily come natural to you as it pertains to empathy and compassion then surrounding yourself by others who do that for you right do that for you And, and and then to to quote uh dr maya angelou who said you know students will forget you know what you taught them but they'll never forget how you make them feel now, I'm paraphrasing that a little bit, um, but recognizing that part, right? How, how do others make you feel? How does it make you feel when certain things uh, happen uh, or said to you? Then analyzing that, reflecting on that, and recognizing that certain things that you say and do can call harm, and being humble enough to, to hear when you've caused harm, and to learn from that, and to aim to be better, And to so then to quote Dr. Maya Angelou again, you know, once you know better, do better. And I think that's our, that's our aim. That should be all of our aim as humans, is to get better at being human. And that's what I like about human-centered design. I'm thinking, how does what I do and with others and what we create affect people who are experiencing real problems that, if not corrected, have huge consequences. And in some cases, that's as simple as mispronouncing on a regular basis someone's name. What hurt is behind that, because it's, it's clear that you don't care enough to attempt to do better, at being better, as it pertains to me, I think if we um, we do better at that, then we can do better by other people. That includes our colleagues and students,
0: yeah, and I, I think this is where you know your your book is a leadership book. Um, you know, I, I don't know if you would reject that categorization, but I think when we are talking about really wanting emotional intelligence to be a part of what we are doing, centering students, also recognizing that we're not quote unquote empowering students to become problem solvers. They are problem solvers. They do have issues right now. Um all of that is in this book and I don't know how you did it in less than 200 pages, but all of that is here and I I kind of want to position this book like this is a time of year when I feel like I notice in social media, there's a lot of like, what are some of the best leadership books that are out there, you know, that kind of thing and I, I, I know that I've got a lot of school leaders who listen to this show, and I know that there are a lot of professional development books out there, but I really try to do my best to focus on books that they are – like, this is a leadership book. This is also, I think, a great book that schools that have uh, curated parent caretaker places – like, I'm also Mm -hmm. thinking about this as such a great read for your parent caretaker community – so I, I wonder if wow. in closing, yeah, did you, like, I, I really do see this as a book for anybody involved in education or caretaking of young folks. And I, I don't know, like maybe it wasn't meant to be for such a broad audience, but is that a fair assessment?
1: Um, yes. And I think that not to vilify anyone for whatever their motivations are for writing whatever they write but oftentimes people may write for a very very narrow and specific purpose they may do it because they recognize that something is trending in the moment they may do it because they see opportunity at the other end of it if I write it for this audience and I give these tips and these ways and people will recognize me uh to be to come and do this for them Um, some do it to sort of nominate themselves as the expert in particular areas right there's all kinds of motivations i wrote this book to wipe all of that to the side and to say um i'm just gonna write the book that i want to write and It is about the learning and the journey that I'm still on in attempting to marry the passions that I have around social justice and quality education. Mm. (laughs) They don't have to be either or uh, by any means. You don't have to be a school that does one thing really, really well, but does very poorly in the other. Uh, And then when you consider that we are whole-brained individuals, so utilizing both sides of the brain is something that is most important in actual learning. So to call something soft skills and something else hard skills, I reject those as notions, Mm. right? But I then try and communicate. Here's why, right? Uh, When we have the research that supports different practices, but we don't employ them, it makes me wonder why and what's the real motivation then, right? If we know things as simple as um, you know, good nutrition, um, adequate sleep, uh, wake up times, you know, all of these sort of things, we know that movement and play uh, affect learning. We know these things, but we don't employ them. Then we have to ask the question why and what's the motivation behind maintaining what is a status quo school leaders are best positioned to interrogate what is happening in their environments and then to implement or at least begin the implementation of that change and for them to recognize in order to do that they need to do that with those who are most proximate to the pain of the things that are problematic within their setting. Okay, if we can if we can start there, then I think we can accomplish big goals. But if we start with, we're not actually problem solving, we're just implementing a new vision for what purpose? Well, because we want to, right? When everything comes from a remote distant land and then it's implemented upon a community, And then there are consequences for not following through with whatever that plan is or not achieving whatever those stated goals are. That is the definition of a toxic environment. (laughs) But if we can co-create environments where everyone is constantly looking to improve what is happening around them, then I think that we are actually accomplishing what we, when I say we, I mean collective we, educators. When you ask almost any educator, why did they get into education? Right? It comes out in some way, shape, or form to make the world a better place. right? That's like That's what they say, why they got started. That's how they got into this. Now, where we may be, however many years later, is maybe... a a strong drift from that original purpose. And that's because of all of the pressures that are around us to do something that does not anything like what you may have originally started out to do. And so my hope is that my book helps everyone in the education community to recognize the drift that they may have taken. And that includes myself. uh, And to steer back cannot be done alone, Uh, but also can be accomplished if we sort of level set certain things, such as um, eliminating the mindset of uh, individualism and personal achievement as primary, uh, but thinking more around collective good, right? Which is why I take aim at um, things such as Maslow, not only in Maslow being credited for something that he should not have been credited for, but completely co-op and changing and transforming something that was uh, intended for cooperative collective good. right. So if we can reorient around, what was that original thinking? Collective good. Okay. And what does that require? Well, that requires bringing in the people who are affected by the problems. That also requires that we truly deeply understand what the problem is that we are trying to solve and that we work on it together and that we can utilize any of the different design thinking models that exist, uh, including in time, uh, personal plug there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But it's because design thinking models by design, no pun intended, aim to have you ask the questions necessary before trying to solve it. Most of our problem solving processes are two steps. What's the problem? Here are solutions. Let's go. And that's not how designers think because designers know there can be huge detrimental ramifications. If you sloppily go into, right, implement something that has not been well thought out. An engineer would never do such thing, right? Um, a, A good doctor would never do such thing. Uh, So instead to stop, pause, listen, learn, slow down in our thinking in order to then implement solutions that were also open-handed to them needing to be modified in order to uh, improve a situation. That remedy may need to be improved because of what we learn along the way as well. That's what I aim to happen. And yes, school leaders, absolutely. so no, I will not correct you in that <laughs> by any means. But also recognizing that you know, most educators in, in every setting has some form of power. How are you going to utilize it for the good of the people who are
0: in your midst? Can't think of a better note than that to end on. I mean, I I think the book so eloquently highlights those issues and then brings the reader Hope, not empty hope, like actionable oh. ideas and steps, because I think that is so important right now. And this, yeah, this book, I think, again, is going to remind folks what are those true values that really do deepen the roots of a community? Humility. Yeah. Seeing the capacity in others, you know, I, I kept thinking back to Adrienne Marie Brown has this wonderful quote uh, from the work Holding Change. There's a conversation in the room that only these people can have. Find it. Like really, whenever you're facilitating, like not having that deficit mindset, but really seeing these folks who I'm learning with when we come together, like it's that collective power, right? How can we do that? That power building. Um, such a powerful book, an absolute joy to read. I also, I will actually just, I, I have to point out, you know, you mentioned the physical margins of the book, that intentional design as an invitation to the reader. I loved that. I absolutely loved that choice. And I feel like that as an invitation to the reader was really powerful have you had many readers reach out to you and and kind of mention the, the power of that
1: yes yes and it's been absolutely humbling um, for sure people have have mentioned it i've had people send me screenshots of the notes that they've written in the margins Uh, I literally had a friend hand me her book Mm -hmm. and said, I want you to just read through some of the things that I wrote, (laughs) which uh, I feel like you're giving me your journal now, (laughs) you know, uh, such personal connections. And I think it's because I I share Mm -hmm. a lot of narrative along with research in my book. And I realize I'm doing a lot of talking too, right? There's, that's just the nature of, of reading, right? Uh, but I want to remind the reader that even I believe, even though there are limitations to physical print work, um, that their experiences, their ideas, their education and background and all of those things really do matter. And interestingly enough, struggled with a title for this book and didn't come up with the title until probably the last chapter. Hmm. (laughs) And I just thought, oh, wow, Uh, there it is. It's like, it's right there. (laughs) Demarginalizing design uh, fits in that also that double entendre of having wide margins. So I just feel like a a lot of things worked out in terms of uh, being able to have layered elements that hopefully have layered experiences for readers, but the the wider margins, if I can make them wider, I would.
0: Well, I love that. And the layers, again, are going to have me coming back to this book multiple times. So thank you again for everything that went into bringing it to be. Uh, again, listeners, to learn more about the book, head over to the show notes. You'll find lots of links where you can also learn about these podcasts we've talked about, as well as Solvent Time and Maker Kitchen. Thank you so much for your time and going a little bit deeper into some of the, the stories and the thinking behind the book. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. This was great.